The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good morning to you, Kobus. Good morning. Kobus, as you and I know, in Washington today, the focus is on how to challenge China's rising influence in the global south, especially in places like Africa. Now, even as the Biden administration has come into power and says that it wants to adopt a new tone in how it confronts China, it very much still sees Beijing as a peer competitor, and as we've heard lately in the confirmation hearings, as a strategic rival. So there's really not going to be any dialing down of the tensions anytime soon from the Trump administration. It feels more like they're just going to evolve and change. So while the U.S. and China continue to face off against one another, there's another great power rivalry also underway, but this one is happening here in Asia between the world's two largest countries, India and China. Now, it has been, and I cannot overstate this, it has been an absolutely terrible, horrendous year in India-China relations. The two countries have engaged one another militarily along the disputed border high up in the Himalayas on what's called the line of actual control. This is something that is still going on today. The rhetoric between the two countries, both from official government spokespeople and online, is just downright terrible, awful bad. Tensions also flared when India banned 58 Chinese apps, including TikTok. India, of course, is also a member of the Quad. Now, that's a club of four countries that includes Japan, Australia, and the United States that is nominally there to confront China, China here in Asia. So there's a lot going on in this space. And then, of course, there's the Indian Ocean and Africa, where countries like the Seychelles are being courted by both countries. Now, the COVID situation has taken a bad situation and just made it even worse. And I noticed this tweet that just came out today as I was kind of reading in for the show, and it said, while China exported the disease, India is healing the world. That came from Pema Khandu, who is a member of the ruling BJP party. And it really goes to show some of the, the mindset that's in India. And there's certainly equally aggressive mindset that's in China on these issues. But it shows you that, that COVID is, is changing the dynamic and extending the rivalry now beyond the Asia-Pacific region into the Indian Ocean region and then, of course, into Africa. And vaccines are very much now part of that face-off between the two countries. India is the world's largest producer of vaccines. It's declared itself ready to be, quote-unquote, the pharmacy of the world. And a lot of those vaccines are coming out of a place called the Serum Institute of India, which is the world's largest vaccine manufacturer. It now produces the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine under license, which it hopes to before the end of 2021 to get production up to a billion doses a year. So, Kobus, we have a very complex situation that is extending from Asia over to Africa, and it really shows once again that Africa, I don't want to say that it's caught in between a great power rivalry, but it's very much part of another great power rivalry beyond what's going on with the U.S., Europe, and China. 
This is such a fascinating situation because you know the the U.S. China tension is is plays out in Africa as a kind of a global north versus global south tension, but the India China tension is becomes this interesting situation of who's souther, you know, who's who's the the more south of these of all of these these different participants, and of course you know they both of them have long relationships with Africa, both of them have kind of these complicated like like you know politico cultural ties. Um, that go back all the you know d- deep into the Cold War, and so, so it's really really interesting to see how everyone is kind of leveraging the different f- different kind of versions of Southness. And let's not forget that both countries are the major members of the BRICS coalition. That's Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. So when India and China are at odds with each other, it really throws into question whether or not BRICS has a future. Let's get a perspective now on where we are in the India-China-Africa relationship. And for that, I'm thrilled to have on the show Abhishek Mishra, who is a junior fellow in the Strategic Studies Program at the Observer Research Foundation, which is a leading think tank in New Delhi, and joins us from New Delhi. A very good afternoon to you, Abhishek. Good afternoon, Eric. It's uh, my pleasure to be on your platform and share my views on Indian and Chinese engagement in Africa. It's wonderful to have you. And just a little bit of background about the research that you do. You focus on India and Africa's maritime cooperation in the Indian Ocean region. And you're also looking at the Africa continental free trade area. Uh, And for many years, you've been a follower of China-India-Africa relations. So you are very much the right person for us to be talking to today about this issue. Okay, let's start with Uh, We're going to have a a very broad-based conversation where we're going to touch on a lot of different topics, but I just want to get a sense from you as to where does Africa fit today in the current India-China rivalry? Being uh, Asia's two largest economies and, you know, long-standing partners of African continent, both uh, what we're seeing is both India and China, we have been increasing our outreach to the continent primarily through scholarships, through medical assistance, through training, capacity building initiatives, etc. Now, what has happened, especially since the outbreak of the coronavirus, COVID-19, is that all Indian and Chinese efforts have been primarily directed to fill a part of the growing African need at a time when we have seen that not many Western powers or European powers have stepped in to help. Now, for the longest time, as we know, China has been Africa's largest trading partner. And uh, even last year, it was very quick, very nimble to signal its intent to help Africa cope with the pandemic. It dispatched medical productive equipments, testing kits, ventilators, medical masks, etc. to several African countries. Now, though, for China, the one of the most primary motive of such donations last year was to basically not just uh, raise Beijing's profile as a leading provider of you know humanitarian assistance or as the so-called quote-unquote public goods in the global public health sector. There was also China's, we saw billionaire philanthropy that was also in full display when Jack Ma you know donated you know various anti-coronavirus supplies. The embassies went on a donation lists of cash as well, although even the as uh, the suboptimal quality of China's medical supplies have been a major cause of concern, especially what we saw in Nigeria and all. They, you know, took a issue with, you know, China sending their medical teams to Nigeria. So in my personal opinion, as far as China, what they have been doing since last year, as far as their Beijing's uh, donation and their vaccine diplomacy is concerned, 
mostly it aims to achieve basically three objectives first was it was to shift the focus away from talking about the origins of the virus in wuhan which is understandably a very sensitive issue for china but it also aimed to build goodwill overseas and also establish a kind of a total image makeover in front of the world media now on the other hand what india has been doing for india i mean for us uh, this pandemic it has presented although there were several challenges at first we had to deal with but it also presented an equal opportunity as well for india to demonstrate you know its willingness and capacity to shoulder more responsibility now the fact that even with very limited resources india can fight the virus at home as well as reach out to developing countries is indeed a testament to india's status as a responsible and reliable global stakeholder now nowhere what the, what what is interesting is that nowhere has india's developmental outreach been more evident in than in africa uh, with the continent occupying a very central place in indian government's foreign and economic policy in the last 5 to 6 years especially africa has been the focus of india's developmental assistance as well as also diplomatic and political outreach we are planning to open 18 new embassies by 2022 which will take our total number of embassies in the continent to 48 uh, and as we know india as you eric as you rightly pointed out india is known as the pharmacy of the world which is a terminology which is frequently used by indian commentators and politicians etc uh we are supplying very low cost generic medicines this is very widely acknowledged pharmaceutical products as you know along with uh, refined petroleum products they account for basically almost 40% of india's total exports to the african market now in terms of what india is doing like uh, 60% of our global vaccines uh come from india comes from india our indian producers we supply 1.5 billion doses annually to more than 150 countries we are the largest suppliers of bcg and measles vaccines and also dpt vaccines globally the world health organization also sources around 70% of its uh you know essential immunization vaccines from india so overall what we are saying is that like this tussle has been going on you know like through our respective both india and china through our respective health and donation diplomacy we are uh, simultaneously vying to carve a basically a space and a position for ourselves as a to become to be seen as a acknowledged as a reliable partner of africa in its time of need now burnishing our credentials as humanitarian champions has actually been the name of the game in the last 2 years it's super interesting to to hear this this rundown of 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 the way that africa is is, is viewed um in india like what are what are some of the strategic concerns you know within india around china's expansion um in in africa and particularly maybe you know on on the the indian ocean coast of africa and the islands um you know like how how was how is that viewed um from new delhi basically like i mean as we know the indian ocean it connects indian western coast and along with Af- african eastern coast india has a very big which is not often spoken about india has a massive like di- diaspora people of indian origin and non resident indians in uh, especially mainly in east africa so uh, that region has always been important to us even in terms of trading perspectives and all it 
it goes back like centuries back so but what has been happening recently is that um, as far as the indian ocean is concerned is that there has been significant changes which has been happening which is altering basically the balance of power uh, between um, you know like in the indian ocean region as you know many extra regional and non resident powers are beginning to establish a permanent presence in the indian ocean what we have seen is that in the last 10 years in the last decade the most uh, biggest change we have witnessed is a sharp, a sharp escalation in chinese naval activities in the especially in the northern indian ocean uh, throughout its you know hydrographic surveys in the exclusive economic zones of the littoral countries or growing deployment of submarines and unarmed underwater drones as well as also we saw it back in 2017 the establishment of its first overseas military facility in djibouti now what is interesting to note here is that although china does state that you know the base in djibouti is basically to help them facilitate uh, it's a basically they term it as a logistics base and which will eventually help them to deter piracy in gulf of aden but what is interesting for us as indian viewers and other viewers is that i mean how come you can use the excuse of piracy i mean there is no need for vessels and all when you have to deal with piracy there is no need for hydrographic surveys or destroyers or i mean and maritime militia if you want to deter piracy that can be done in other ways as well so biggest concern for india uh, which we have uh, on china's presence in the indian ocean is is that basically what china is doing is it's basically seeking to pursue its uh, pursue its national self interest through very persistent and very consistent actions with the eventual aim of being the dominant state in not just indian ocean basically the entire indo pacific now this the shape which this possible chinese hegemony might take might be uniquely chinese in character basically it will be a kind of a chinese hegemony with socialist characteristics now covid 19 has definitely made this more of a reality more of a realistic realistically possible rather than less likely it has become made it more likely mainly like why because why i'm saying that because uh, you know like uh, as we know the world center of gravity definitely has shifted over the years from the atlantic mediterranean to the indo pacific now and this shift has occurred way much more faster than what the west has had planned for or anything china is certainly the central actor in all this drama but asean is also fighting for its centrality india and also have hastened this process of recognizing indo pacific also we have also seen that uh, what uh, the uh, what we had what expectations we had from kind of you know 5 years or a decade ago is that like that the balance of power between china and us it's definitely on a, there was a thought that like it's it will likely remain decisively in favor of america at least for the first half of this century but this has as we know this has been proved wrong and also china definitely they are ma- building networks of trade the, they are building up entire parallel universe in all these technology finance and trade which will selectively reduce not just its vulnerabilities to america's hegemony but also to other players like france japan india etc so its international behavior in the year of covid when covid 19 has surfaced it gives it legitimate 
cause for concern to the peripheral and you know proximate states of not just indian ocean i mean including the african island oceans island nations like mauritius nations comoros madagascar but also to all the proximate states of the indo pacific it sounds like you're dismissing the purpose of the Djibouti base in terms of what the Chinese have said it is, which is to support the multinational anti-piracy operations that they've been involved in for the past 10 years, which, by the way, they're not alone in doing that. Warships from, from other countries as, are there as well. And you've also used the word hegemony uh, to describe China's presence in that region. Do you? I guess I'm just curious because... Uh, do you believe that China's hegemonic power in the Indian Ocean? I mean, one military base is really not that much, and the Chinese Navy outside of East Asia is not anywhere near as strong to be able to enforce its interest in many ways. Though, so it seems like pretty strong rhetoric that you're using to describe the Chinese presence in the Indian Ocean or the northern Indian Ocean all the way into the Gulf of Aden. And I'm just curious if you could be a little bit more precise on that. Yeah, no, I, I fully concur that uh, China is not alone in, you know, like having a base in Djibouti. I mean, there are six, seven other powers. But, I mean, India is also doing the same. I mean, it's getting access with the help of Japan and all to the base in Djibouti or uh, in the Reunion Island with the help of France. We are also like, not overtly, but we are also like doing the same thing. I'm not denying that. But what I was trying to, the point I was trying to drive home is that like, you know, like as we know, China, you know, like it... They speak of a, you know, so-called community of a, you know, like shared future of mankind or what they call like uh, win-win cooperation. So it basically what China is doing is that it plays, you know, the balance of power politics and it basically acts in ways which, you know, take the advantage away from others in adversity. It China is aiming to, you know, like establish its supremacy in areas of productive technology, as I mentioned, trade, networks, financing options, in ways that shuts out the competition. Now, Belt and Road Initiative is a good example. It is not just creating a sinocentric system of, you know, like not just specifications, but also a sinocentric system of standards, of regulations, and as well as of I think norms as well. So with all these norms, standards, regulation, eventually in the future, it will favor China's technology and services to the detriment and to the exclusion of others. So I'm not talking about China's debt and all that has been nullified. There is no, I, I don't personally don't concur with the debt trap diplomacy or anything of that sort. But the pressure it's creating, I mean, why do they have excess state capital or why are they investing in projects i mean of course we know that africa does it has a very financing gap infrastructure gap it lags in it those are important requirements which aligns with you know like china's or china's and africa's uh, agenda 2063 but you know like it's creating dependencies is the, is the point which i'm trying to draw not just digital dependencies and all like what we saw with huawei 5g and fiber optic uh, networks. These are some ways in which, you know, like China is trying to, if I may say, rewire the region for its own long-term benefit. One of, one of the kind of interesting contrasts between India and China as they pre present themselves in Africa is that, is that India frequently emphasizes the fact that it's a democracy. 
and obviously there's this this strong democratic cultures in many African cultures and many African countries and and you know kind of an, and that is a kind of an, an appealing po- point of meeting um however you know kind of over the last while we, we've also seen the rise of Hindu nationalism in India um and with it you know some some kind of significant kind of anti anti-islamic movements you know popular movements um how how are these developments affecting this kind of narrative of India as a democracy in Africa nationalistic nationalistic sentiments are definitely on the uproar but i don't think it's like it has a bearing on our on what india's africa policy has shaped out to be especially in this last five years i mean uh, as we know india and africa we share a rich cultural connect uh, it we have been collaborating i mean it's for more than 70 years we have had ties not just from the spirit of decolonization all the anti-apartheid movement and etc like from then we have been like training and giving assistance and capacity so the definitely i mean yes uh, i do agree that i mean the nationalistic sentiments are creating a problem domestically but i personally don't think it has a bearing on especially on what india's africa policy has turned out to be uh, back in 20 i mean one of the biggest problems which African leaders have had with India is that like basically even after 70 years of having you know like such a rich connect we never like had a you know we never had a clear-cut vision or strategy India never had a clear-cut strategy for Africa so this was a big uh, grievance from the African side but now back in what we saw back in July in 2018 Prime Minister Narendra Modi, he gave a address at the Ugandan parliament where he basically outlined a vision, 10.10 guiding principles for bilateral partnership with African countries. Not just bilateral, but with the, with the regional economic communities as well as in the continental level through the African Union as well. So uh, so what this is doing is that we, India, we don't normally have any... Uh, white paper documents or something which will detail you know bilateral engagement with nations i mean that is for various administrative reasons and all but after this 10 guiding principles for uh, 10 guiding principles on india and africa now we can say that we have a coherent vision or strategy and although yes nationalistic sentiments are on the rise that's a problem but at the same time we can't uh, ignore the fact that under pm modi's administration especially in the last five years, we have been uh, trying to fix the like, so-called niche areas or so-called problems which has often been associated uh, with India-Africa relations. Our project, we have been termed as uh, elephants and all because of a slow delivery of projects, etc. That record has improved. Uh, total lines of credit India has over the far overall cumulative is around uh, $12.5 billion all the targets which we mentioned back in 2015 at the third india africa forum summit in new delhi which was attended by almost uh, african leaders from 42 44 countries which was a big deal so all those all the grants like uh, 700 million in grants uh, many concessional yeah, we have opened uh, many concessional credits many lines of credit almost 12.5 billion dollars scholarships what we don't talk about we only tend to speak of China scholarships to African students. Uh, we tend to forget that India alone has also provided over 50,000 scholarships to Africa, African students in the last five years. So from 
from 2015 to 2020 only we provided 50000 scholarships which i think if i am not mistaken which is more than what china has provided so these are just some of the things i do agree with dr van staden that yes nationalistic sentiments are on the rise that's creating some issues back at home but that is a domestic issue will i mean i can't comment much more on that so when we think about kind of the geopolitics of the moment that we're in today, there's this fascinating process underway in Washington now where the American government is trying to reposition its Africa policy in such a way that the offer on the table is something that's distinct from what China's doing. So there's this mood in Washington that says, okay, we're not going to be able to compete with the Chinese on infrastructure. We're not going to be able to compete with them on Huawei. There's a number of different things that we can't compete with them on. So what we're going to do is start looking for those areas where we have a competitive advantage on governance, on human rights, on on democracy issues, things like that. The Chinese um, have made an offer to Africans which says, we will give you financing, at least they did, that financing issue now is in question, but they will bring development, they will also bring uh, support and a powerful ally at the United Nations, they will bring security issues now in terms of being the number one contributor to UN security, uh, peacekeeping forces among the P5 members. So when we think about what India's offer is when they position themselves, the 10-point plan that Modi presented in Uganda. What is that offer? Because I think it's a difficult sell in one sense, because China has been able to convey that in the past 40 years, we've taken our country from being one of the poorest countries in the world to the second largest, possibly the largest country in the world. We're now no longer a pure developing country. We're a pure competitor to the United States, and we are the development model. We are the governance model, in fact, as well. And as we've seen in Uganda, interestingly, democracy is not really a sexy topic in many parts of Africa these days. So what is the offer from India in order to compete against the Chinese and to say we are a not necessarily a preferred partner, but a different partner? I mean, necessarily, it's not uh, India is not coming with just the offer of democracy as a, you know, like as a distinction to China or other powers. Now, see what. India and Africa, as far as they are, con- they are concerned, we have a very rich history of, you know, both cultural as well as political interactions, as well as economic engagement. All of these, our engagements have been, uh, if I may say, rooted in the spirit of, you know, developing together as equals. Now, indeed, our ties may yet redefine the contours of uh, the international order along more egalitarian lines. However, as we know, Africa is a continent of the move and COVID-19 has given a lot of, provided a lot of challenges. Now, India's, we do have a very intrinsic interest in helping Africa achieve progress. I, I am again uh, uh, pointing this fact that the spirit of developing together as equals, it is, this is what defines India's and Africa's partnership. Uh, that can define what China says also as a win-win cooperation, but how we are different is not just for the our democratic credentials, but we we speak we are English we are a predominantly English spoken country. Uh, that is one advantage which we have. Uh, like uh, in uh, in areas like uh, in global common challenges like South South cooperation or especially addressing challenges like you know clean technology or you know maritime security or cli- blue economy climate resilient agriculture and all. All of these are areas where, you know, uh, uh, women's inclusion 
participation all of these are areas where indian and africa as in the 2063 alliance so it's not as if like it's not that india is offering something very different to africa it's just that we we do i mean we have had uh, a connect for all of these decades all of these years it's it's now in the last 4 5 years where we have been driving home we have been trying to capitalize on all these projects our deli- project delivery has improved uh, all our commitments have been met but still that is of course not enough i mean in the in the popular term it's not enough we can do much more but we have to remember that like we are not as economically like driven or gifted like china even with our like limited potentials and all we have been reaching out to africa and in no small way if i may stress in no small way we are our numbers are quite good in africa it's it's just that like this infusion of energy and something new and concrete is what was missing all of these years and when it came to india africa relation but now to certain extent it has been rectified and we don't need to i mean i personally am of the opinion that i don't see india as india and china as competitors in africa actually on the other hand like there has been instances of us cooperating bidding together to win projects uh, oil projects back in in uh, sudan back in 2005 or 2006 and also again once more in 2011 if i am not mistaken so we i mean india's cooperation with africa is completely stand alone uh, it's not influenced by any what any other powers let alone what china is doing in africa we recognize our competitive advantages in the region which is like we are we speak english we uh, we have a rich heritage we have a rich cultural history with african countries we have a huge diaspora there diasporas have been like we have been using them as strategic resources to leverage our participation and we provide scholarships and all the technical capacity so many indian indians uh, professors medical medical uh, teachers etc we are providing african countries with the skilling and the basic training which they require uh, we are not going to i mean we are not going to just provide them with money and uh, um, dump them with investments we are going to help them with capacity building is what i was stressing upon Abhishek Mishra is a junior fellow in the strategic studies program at the Observer Research Foundation in New Delhi Uh, he is a regular commentator on India Africa China affairs on Twitter. He writes a lot for ORF as well on their website. Uh, Abhishek, thank you so much for taking the time to to join us and to explain what is a very complicated situation, but one I think that we all need to start paying a lot more attention to in part because of the challenges that are going on today between India and China in Asia do seem to be finding their way into the Indian Ocean and of course into parts of Africa as well. Uh if people want to follow what you're reading and writing these days what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Uh I'm there on Twitter it's uh at uh, Mishra M I S H R A P S Q U E. Excellent. Well, I will put a link to your Twitter feed in the show notes and really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me Eric and Dr. Van Steren. It was lovely finally getting the opportunity to speak with you. Kobus Abishek has left me more confused about this issue than when we started the conversation and I say that as the ultimate compliment to Abishek because again you you come into these issues thinking that you have an understanding 
of, of what the dynamics are. And as we're seeing in the India-China relationship, it is so complex, much like in the U.S.-China relationship, and it is bleeding over into Africa. There's no way around it. And we've talked on a number of occasions about how African governments and stakeholders are going to have to up their game in terms of how they deal with China to build more China-specific policies. I think the same should be true about India. And now that India is a major player in a number of African countries when it comes to vaccines, and even if it's not directly a Sino-Indian issue or an Africa-Indian issue, the fact is that the vaccines are coming from India. Uh, from the Serum Institute, and that's all part of the mix here. So the geopolitics of this are getting much, much more complicated. It is imperative that people take the time to actually do the research on it because, as he, as he talked about, India and China share a land border, and that changes the dynamic of the relationship than, say, with the United States, which doesn't share a land border, but yet nonetheless is very tense and getting worse. And I I just don't see how how... You know, smaller countries in Africa and, and weaker regions like Africa will be able to defend themselves when these big giant powers are, are tussling with each other. Well, you know, I, th I think for many African countries, they, they see it also as an opportunity. Um as a way to to play different ones off each other, as a way to 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 kind of leverage different kinds of connections, um, you know. So so, and I think that there's a, there's a lot that all of these powers can learn from each other. I think one of the things that India could probably you know note that they could take from China is the fact that China arrives in Africa with so many um, kind of instruments already ready to roll out. You know, kind of the the the, the 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 way that funding is set up in China, the way that that the the companies work with the government. You know, there's a lot of like kind of like problems to raise around that to that particular relationship but it, it in from an african perspective it's a very efficient one so um you know so so it is you know it's it's interesting to see that the contrast between them but i think there's also a lot of kind of like back and forth learning that that could be useful but i don't get the sense that india works that way so china may work that way but much like the united states india has a much more decentralized system which is not a turnkey all of government approach to doing these kinds of things. And that's been one of the difficulties I think that India's had in jumpstarting its engagement in Africa in such a way that it does effectively compete with China. And that's when I asked him about the offer. What is the Indian offer? And democracy is what usually comes up first, but that's what the United States says. Again, I'm not entirely convinced that that's something that Africans want to hear about from, from a country like India. Whereas I think there are much more practical considerations about, for example, setting up pharmaceutical manufacturing operations, doing back office work, all the things that made, has made India so incredibly successful and vibrant as an economy today. A lot of that can be brought over into many African countries. And especially we talk about this quite a bit, that India is in a very similar stage of development as many African countries as well. That gives it a very distinct advantage in terms of the discourse that happens. There's this massive chasm when the United States, Europe, and Japan talk to Africa because they're so far removed from the development stage of where Africa is today. But that is not the case with India, even more so compared to China, where you have places like Shanghai or uh, Beijing, Shenzhen, Guangzhou, which are at par with advanced economies. China today is on its way to being a, an advanced economy. That is not the case with India. So I think that there are some really great examples on what India has been able to do economically that can be brought over. And that to me feels like it should be more of its offer 
than some of the more political issues like democracy and human rights and things like that. Yeah, I think I think there's also like India is a, is is an incredible laboratory of of different kinds of policies, or domestic development policies, and diverse, you know kind of ways of of making the most with 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 lean resources. And I think you know Africa has has a long history of learning from India in that respect, and and, and there's a lot more kind of peer learning that can happen. Um, I think it's also what's what's very interesting to Africa is that it, it is that India comes. With you know, with with a, a kind of a reformist global agenda, you know, to the table, and I think that is that is also something that that Africa wants to hear. I think many African leaders are you know frequently when 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 China talks about reforming the global system or challenging you know kind of traditional hegemonies, I think many African leaders assume that what they're actually saying is, oh, we we want to keep it roughly as it is, we want to re- replace who's in charge. Whereas you know, with with India, I think frequently they you know, when they talk about reforming global system, they 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 bring really concrete ideas of what that might look like, and you, th- that is frequently very attractive to Africans. Very quickly before we go, just want to get your take as a, a, a constituent, a resident of somebody who's in a BRICS country. What do you think is the future of the BRICS? Now, let's kind of bring everybody up to date. The BRICS was this idea uh, that it was supposed to be this alternative to the kind of Western-led system in many ways. This was the the rise of the rest, in, as it was kind of famously touted back then. So much promise. Brazil, Russia, India, China, lots of excitement. Those great summits where they had everybody kind of holding hands together. We thought, wow, this is incredible. And it is just now kind of like a bust. Because if India and China are at each other's throats, in fact, and by the way, Brazil and China also aren't getting along very well, so it doesn't really feel like there's a lot of camaraderie in the BRICS. What's your reading as to the future of the BRICS? It's difficult to say. I'm a little, sh- I'm a little shy of talking about BRICS because because some of my colleagues are real BRICS experts, and I, you know, kind of, I, I focus more, uh, more just on China. But the, um, you know, I, I think BRICS provided BRICS has been surprisingly kind of as as has proven surprisingly kind of robust over a long time i think people people have been predicting that the BRICS falling apart forever and they're kind of still chugging along um you know the, obviously the, the the setting up of the new development bank um you know was was a major milestone that's true the new development bank is a huge accomplishment uh, the, the new development bank out of shanghai which has been extending large loans into BRICS countries, a billion dollars into South Africa. So you're right. That if that's if nothing else, the New Development Bank, which was formerly known as the BRICS Bank, uh, is a is a rather significant accomplishment. You know, I think the BRICS's challenge is, is is always the kind of balancing everyone else's power with China's power. And you know, the 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 South Africa's accession to to the BRICS bloc was was really due to Chinese pressure, and 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 it cemented the the China South Africa relationship. You know, significantly. Um, I think at its best, BRICS prov- provides a, a space for all of these countries to kind of put aside their 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 rivalries and to work. On, on some kind of uh, some kind of unified agenda, but I think it's becoming increasingly difficult to say what that agenda is. Um, and you, you know, and and in the process, I think um, as the different BRICS countries move, you know, like move through different phases of government. You know, so for example, we, you know, we've seen kind of Brazil going from a from a left wing kind of very democratic system to quite a right wing system. You know, in during the the its time in BRICS, the, the you know as, as they all kind of move from from you know 
know, from phase to phase, it also, BRICS keeps having to kind of redefine itself. Um, so I, I don't particularly expect BRICS to disappear. But I also don't necessarily expect it to like be this kind of world-shaping power that, that some you know predicted it to be. Well, let's leave our conversation there. This India issue is going to be one that we come back to in part because India is increasingly becoming a major player, not just because of BRICS, but also because of vaccines. And then the issue over influence in the Indian Ocean. We didn't have time to get to the Seychelles, which was one of the questions that I wanted to bring him about, how the fact that China and India are both vying for influence there. So lots to talk about in the future. Future. We do cover India quite a bit in our daily email newsletter, and I would love to remind everybody who listens to the show that as a listener of the podcast, we have a special gift for you, a 20% discount off of your lifetime subscription. That is, year after year when it renews, you'll still get that low discounted rate. Just go to ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. Use the promo code podcast and you'll get a 20% discount on your subscription. That will give you the China Africa Daily Brief, also full access to our website and the China Africa Experts Network. So we would love to have you as part of our growing reader network around the world. That'll do it for this edition. For Kobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. We'll be back again next week with another episode of the China in Africa podcast. Until then, thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. Or follow the guys on Twitter. Eric's at Iolanda, and you can find Kobas at Stadenesk. For more information about the China Africa Project and to sign up for our free weekly email news brief, go to chinaafricaproject.com. Mm-hmm.